Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode 13 of the International Sonography Podcast. Lorinda and I are so fortunate to sit down with our next guest. She's held many positions, including the past president of the SDMS, a program director at the Mayo School of Health-Related Sciences for the Diagnostic Medical Sonography Program, and has also been a lecturer, author, you name it, she's done it. She's uh, had her hand in many things and is very humble and sweet. Please welcome to the podcast, Miss Katie Kuntz. Katie, welcome to the International Song Free Podcast. We've been wanting to have you on for quite a while, and we're so excited to get to talk with you today. Before we jump into the questions, we'd like to ask first, where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit about your childhood. I grew up in a small town in central Minnesota, but we were kind of close to the bigger city, so I had kind of both worlds that were there. I I was one of five children, uh, an older brother, three girls, a younger brother, which we affectionately uh, referred to as the king and the prince. And we three girls were in the middle, uh, and our jobs were to uh, serve them and make their lives comfortable. (laughs) Wow. Uh, seriously, great, a great childhood. Um, I grew up uh, in the middle 50s and early 60s. Um, my mom was a school teacher, and the elementary school was literally right across the street from us. And so we spent a lot of time in school, um, w- you know, with her, kind of hanging out with her. My dad was a businessman with a very strong, positive work ethic. Uh, He would go to work at six o'clock in the morning and come home at six o'clock at night, six days a week. And uh, I remember the first time he closed his business on a Saturday was when my sister got married. Otherwise, always there, always. So um, maybe those two things kind of helped shape my love of education and the ability to not be able to relax and work all the time. I can relate. I grew up with two school teacher parents. Then you know what I'm talking about. What were your post-secondary goals and aspirations? Well, you know, I grew up in the middle 50s and early 60s. And the kinds of educational opportunities or career opportunities at that time were different. Uh, A lot of it was, you know, you can be a teacher. uh, You can be, um, have a medical career, mostly nursing um, were the opportunities that were there or business, and a lot of that was kind of clerical or office type work. So when I got to high school in the middle and later 60s, those things were changing very rapidly. And the opportunities that were available were just kind of blowing up. Um, that it, it really was a very different time from uh, when I was younger to kind of my middle years and even uh, my post-secondary. So both of my sisters, these two sisters I mentioned, were nurses. So it was sort of assumed that I would follow in their footsteps and become a nurse. And I did try that, but it didn't take me more than one year to realize it really just wasn't for me. So I had a a, a minor health issue and I uh, finished my freshman year in college, but I wasn't able to go back for my sophomore year. And so it was an opportunity for me to kind of rethink this nursing pathway that I had kind of been 
um, encouraged by my sisters and my family to follow into. And about that time, uh, my brother was dating what was at that time called an x-ray tech, uh, a radiographer. And she asked me, did I think I would be interested in something like that? Because I was still very intrigued by the medical career thing. I just knew nursing wasn't for me. And so I eventually did go to what at that time they called x-ray school. And I did follow my sisters in their footsteps. They had both taken jobs as nurses at uh, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, which was um, just down the road in, in my home state of Minnesota. So I took a job as a radiographer at Mayo Clinic. And um, there, uh, after about a year, they were looking for somebody who might be interested in this new technology called ultrasound and looking for people to volunteer. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. I think I would like to try it. So I may have gone beyond the question you asked. So Not at all. No, that's exactly, there's always a nugget. There's always that little pearl of like, how did you step into sonography? And it's always some cool little, well, I had, you know, my brother's girlfriend. I had somebody yeah. to me and asked me to find the on button on this ultrasound machine, which was Joe Baker's story. So there's always some cool, and that's why I asked this question is, Sonography is always brought to, to these people that we've been talked to in some kind of weird little way, entered their world, and then that's how they became to know where they are today. So Yeah. When, uh, when I first got into it, and maybe this is going to jump into further questions you're going to ask, it was doing a, an exam called echoencephalograms. And to some of your listeners, I might sound like a dinosaur speaking when I, <laughs> when I talk about this, but um, it was an A-mode exam. And uh, uh, it was looking for uh, hemorrhages in the brain. And it's hard, I think, sometimes, I know it was hard for my students to understand, even, even though it wasn't that long ago, there was no CT, there was no MR, it hadn't been invented yet. And so this was just this brand new way to be able to look inside the body in this non-invasive way. Um, so because I was an employee of the Department of Radiology, it was at a time when there were a lot of turf wars going on uh, for reimbursement for exams. And so the neurology department was doing these uh, echoencephalograms. Um, the OB department obviously was the, um, the obvious use of, of this non-ionizing um, imaging technique. And radiology was just kind of breaking into it. And so as sonographers, we got bumped around a lot. You know, we'd work with neurology, we would work with obstetrics, we would work with radiology. But eventually, um, OB took up obstetrical sonography, and I had the opportunity to work with abdominal sonography at a time when it was just in its infancy. As I said, no CT, no MR, nobody knew any cross-sectional anatomy in the abdomen. This was just all really new territory for everyone. Wow, I can't even imagine learning those modalities without first learning cross-section, you know, and being able to see all those examples on MR and CT that we were able to see. So it's just, like you said, not, not a dinosaur, but it is like, wow, that was the world <laughs> before we came and how it has quickly evolved is really impressive. So uh, a fun story. Um, I met my husband at Mayo Clinic and he was also a, a radiographer uh, at the time. And he was asked, would he like to try a new technique? And it was called an ME scanner or EMI scanner, which became a C the CT scanner. It was the very first CT scanner. 
And so he was doing cross-sectional imaging and they were doing some brain scanning at that time was kind of the gateway um, into CT scanning. And at that time, if for any of your listeners who might be um, radiographers or have that background, it took them 20 minutes to process one slice. And now it's probably nanoseconds. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's short, very short. Yeah, so that both kind of, yeah we kind we of both, both have been there through this explosion of technology. I mean, really from when people were asking me to figure out even how to operate the machine to now, you know, having handheld devices and having it on our smartphone if we need it. It's just come so, so far. Very much, very much. So I probably went beyond your question, but no. No, that's really cool that you guys got to experience that together. I'm sure that you guys had talks at the dinner table about what's going on at work and, and what you guys were each discovering. Was it helpful to have that background of CT imaging as you're learning the world of ultrasound abdominal imaging? Well, it was, although initially mostly it was neuroimaging and we were working mostly in the abdomen at that time. So, but I definitely remember, um, and, and you know, our, the departments there were very large and very um, um, cohesive. So, you know, we were very close to the CT people and a lot of the um, uh, physicians that were, were specializing in cross-sectional imaging, not just sonography, you know, so they'd be in CT, they'd be in ultrasound and we just uh, rotate back and forth between those departments. Um, it, it, as far as, you know, if you think about this predates uh, 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 image archiving, that kind of thing. So we had to take our hard copy imaging to the physicians for interpretation. Sometimes they were down in the CT suite and we were in the ultrasound suite. So you'd walk down and, you know, you'd be kind of doing a, a be immersed in both worlds. So yeah. it was yeah, very, very helpful, very interesting. That's awesome. And just to clarify for our listeners uh, that weren't, uh, who aren't old enough to have been part of this, but the abdominal imaging is B-scan is what you're referring to, correct? At, at that time it was. And then eventually we broke into um, grayscale and real-time imaging. But yeah, it was, uh, we were on the dark side of the moon for sure. <laughs> You know, something else that was kind of interesting at the time, again, predating any CT, there was not a standardized way for the head to be on the left and the feet on the right, or even left and right imaging. So if you looked at sonograms that might have been done in one institution versus another, it wasn't standardized in any way. And then when CT came along um, and imaged, we sort of followed the same conventional uh, approach to that. But, um, yeah, the sagittal images, I think when I started out, were the opposite direction than they are today. <laughs> oh my goodness, um, completely so was, Yeah, think about, you know, um, kind of the, the challenging uh, your brain cells to think of things in different ways. It was, it was the wild, wild west. <laughs> Absolutely, just kind of waiting for something to pop out of that image to orient you to where is the head and where is the feet of the patient. <laughs> right, right, exactly. exactly. Well, we kind of went into a little bit about uh, just starting to talk about some of the specialties you went into, where did what X-ray program did you go to? I went to a hospital-based program. There were there were no community college-based programs. Okay, they're all hospital-based program. Okay, in Saint in Saint Cloud, Minnesota, Central Minnesota, which is again very near to where I grew up. Okay, so after you got into there and started doing the echoencephalograms and doing a little bit of abdomen, did, did was was certification even a thing then? Did you have to be certified? When did that kind of pop into the world for you? Um, it was not available at that time um, when we started out. Um, 
And I think it probably, um, I'm going to say like in the mid 70s, uh, kind of started to, to um, gain some traction. And working at Mayo, they were very supportive of meeting quality standards, those sorts of things, and were very, um, very helpful to all of us who, I, I say all of us, all three of us, <laughs> who were at that time were interested in being able to, you know, promote this and take it to the next step. So, um, yeah, um, they were very supportive of certification. There were no ultrasound schools or anything like that. Everyone was learning together. But, you know, something that was really interesting about those times, again, when I think of like my entry into teaching or training, that kind of thing, um, everyone was learning. This was brand new and no one studied cross-sectional anatomy. There weren't any textbooks for it. And so um, visiting physicians, residents, medical students, uh, anyone who would come to the department um, was learning. And so you were teaching and learning at the same time. And so this idea of teaching kind of was always part of my job. It was part of what I did every day. We were always um, learning and teaching each other. <laughs> That's awesome. So how did, when did you, so when you did the echoencephalograms and did a little bit of abdomen, when did you finally start to track towards one specialty? Was that like mid seventies um, or late seventies? When was that? Uh, it was probably 1976, 1977, around then. Um, and the echoencephalograms, and that also kind of, um, uh, uh, was the same time that the ME scanners and the CT scanners were being developed. So the echoencephalogram that, you know, obviously was a no, technology that didn't, yeah, didn't uh, transfer into the, the higher tech world of, of uh, tomographic imaging. But, um, you know, so after these turf wars, um, radiology was kind of where we landed because we were uh, employees of the Department of Radiology. But the kinds of things that, um, uh, that really interested me and inspired me uh, were the things that led a lot, I think, to maybe vascular imaging the ab uh, abdomen, specifically like pre and post transplant imaging because Mayo was a big transplant center. You know, we did a lot of pre post transplant and that whole idea of the vascular system in the abdomen, I think probably was a catalyst for more and more uh, vascular imaging to be able to be done. So when Doppler came around, um, it was, and, and uh, we've jumped from bistable all the way up here to Doppler and skipped in uh, all those years in between, but it was, it <laughs> was time warp. We did a time warp real quick. <laughs> it, it was very interesting. And then, you know, along that same line, other things that interested me and, and were kind of inspiring to me at that time, um, you know, the development of transducers was changing and Mayo was involved in some of the research in this. And so looking at the higher megahertz transducers, which at the time we thought, you know, seven and 10 megahertz was the end all, um, we were able to start looking at superficial structures. And because there was a big endocrinology practice at Mayo, we did a lot of thyroids and parathyroid imaging, which sort of led us to the world of carotid artery imaging. Um, and uh, a dedicated vascular department. So those areas um, were, were big to me. Another um, area that very much interested me and that I had the opportunity to participate in was interventional imaging and ultrasound guidance um, for um, biopsy and ablation, which again, a lot were being done. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna say five or 10 years into my clinical practice already, those areas were, were a big part of what kind of shaped uh, what was available to us. So now you've been a staff sonographer 
a lead sonographer, a program director at Mayo Clinic, an adjunct professor for programs in Wisconsin and Florida. So, I mean, it sounds like your love for teaching developed as a child and maybe kind of rolled right into this career, but um, how did you get involved with the teaching of the programs initially? Yeah, well, um, when we first, like you said, training was always a part of what we did as our job. As we uh, grew larger as a department, we saw, as you probably realize and your listeners will realize, there was a a large growth period um, or a fast, rapid growth period for sonography. And there were not enough trained sonographers to be able to fill the need um, for, uh, for many clinical practices. So Mayo was training their own sonographers. Um, but we quickly realized that there needed to be um, some sort of standardization for that training that was out there. And so we looked at the opportunity to start our own school. And so I was very interested in this. And so we looked at what was involved and I started approaching my soon to be colleagues in the Mayo School of Health Sciences and looked at established uh, allied health programs that were out there. For example, physical therapy, radiography, nurse anesthesia, uh, respiratory care, respiratory therapy, those kinds of programs and looked at, well, how did you get started? And that was kind of my introduction into the world of accreditation and minimum education standards. At that time, it wasn't KHEP. Um, The American Medical Association was actually involved in sort of the regulating of allied health education. And so Um, It was an organization called CAHIA. I think it was either the Council or the Commission on Allied Health Education Accreditation. But when AMA wanted out and said, we don't really see this as uh, kind of in our wheelhouse anymore, um, that was the birth of KHEP. And so uh, that was the Commission on uh, Accreditation of Allied Health Education Programs. When CAHIA dissolved, some of these professions that were out there said, okay, Um, we're just going to go independent and work with the Department of Education and create an accreditation organization for our professions. So physical therapy, for example, and radiography did that. But sonography was small and in its infancy, you know, with just, you know, maybe a few dozen programs that were out there and couldn't really go in that direction. And so they needed kind of a parent organization to help them, as did many of these other professions that were kind of growing and developing. And that was how KHEP got started. And so um, their model was for um, committees on accreditation to be out there, um, of which um, sonographies was called the Joint Review Committee on Education and Diagnostic Medical Sonography or the JRC DMS. And so when I looked at how I could get this sonography program started, I found these education standards from the JRC DMS and looked at what these minimum quality standards were for education. So I knew a lot about clinical training. I knew practically nothing about setting up a curriculum, you know, to be able to do something like this. And so I worked closely with my colleagues um, in in other professions and started down a pathway to look at a master's degree in education and, and get those skills that I needed to be able to say, well, I have this great clinical knowledge and experience. I also need this knowledge in being able to set up um, an education program. So we pulled a program together and uh, one of the uh, cornerstones of uh, KHEP accreditation is something called a peer review. So your peers come in and review your program and actually do an on-site site visit. 
So I'm sure you'll recognize who my site visitor was. Her name was Joan Baker. <laughs> <laughs> who was that? I don't know. I've never heard of her. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm sure uh, an inspiration to many, many people in the profession, yeah. as we all know. Um, so she came in and looked at our program and was one of our peer uh our peer reviewers, and she said, you need to get into site visiting, you need to get involved professionally. So I had the inspiration of Joan Baker and then the support of my employer to, to really push me into that next step. So we, um, we got our program accredited and, uh, and just kept growing it larger and larger. This may be an ignorant question on my part, but how was KHEP and JRCDMS funded? Was it government funding or how were they funded to run all their committees and their meetings? I wasn't they are both non nonprofit organization. Okay. I they all um, the the JRCDMS has what's called sponsoring organizations, as do all the professions. So yes. they went to their communities of interest in sonography and said, you know, we want to start this committee on education. And so the model was for there to be an annual fee for the sponsoring organizations. So. There are, I think, nine, maybe 10 sponsoring organizations for JRCDMS now. They each pay an annual fee. And that also supports the volunteer board members who sit on the committee. Um, and then this, the site visits that take place, um, though they are also peer volunteers. And there is a fee charged to the college or program to um, reimburse the JRC for the JRCDMS for um, for any cost associated with the site visits. Oh, got it. Okay, that explains a lot. Am I remembering correctly, or maybe it's changed that usually two site visitors go together to evaluate programs? Always two site visitors, um, uh, and as well as initially the program enters into what's called a self-study. So they study themselves to find out how well they're meeting the standards, um, point out any strengths or weaknesses. And then the site visitors go in essentially to substantiate that what they've said on paper is actually happening. And then uh, then go back to site visitors to prevent any bias or any um, perceived bias by one person. And they're very careful to make sure that People don't site visit in their own geographic areas where there might be competition for um, student admit or admissions or um, competition for clinical sites, things like that. Each of the committees on accreditation go through KHEP and KHEP also charges an annual fee to the committees on accreditation. So all volunteer, but all kind of self-sustaining. Makes sense. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit to your statement earlier about Joan Baker. Um, and did you take her advice about getting involved in the profession? Um, I know you've obviously been involved in a lot of different ways, but can you tell us about what was your introduction to SDMS? Sure. Um, well, Joan got me uh, involved in JRCDMS by making me a, or recommending me to be a site visitor. So first I did that. And then, as I said, um, Mayo, uh, as an employer, was always very supportive of um, involvement in your professional organizations that were out there. Um, and so I, you know, joined SDMS. Actually, I joined before it was SDMS. It was called ASUTS. ASU, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then when it became SDMS, um, and they were, uh, my employer was kind enough to sponsor us to be able to go to some of the annual meetings that were there. Um, I know that's not always true for people, so I've always felt very fortunate that I had that um, professional um, uh, support with the subsidization to be able to attend these meetings, which 
I have so much admiration for people who do it out of pocket. It's or who were doing it out of pocket. I think it's it's really just um, a real testament to their commitment to their career and their in their professional organization. But I was at uh, I was at a meeting and um, at that time they were trying to get something called the Educators Committee um, going on JRC or on SDMS. And Joan, uh, it was very casual. They had just kind of a, a room that they pulled uh, out at the meeting and said, anybody who wants to come should come. And so Joan saw me and said, you should definitely need to come to this. And somehow out of that, I ended up being the chair the next year. <laughs> but if you know Joan, you know that she can be very charismatic and uh, uh, talk you into things. And so we did, but it was very small. And, and I don't want to say disorganized, but you know, we were just kind of figuring out what we wanted to do um, at SDMS. And eventually that grew into the educators um, uh, uh, pre-conference tutorial, which um, is still going on these days. So that those casual meetings of, you know, a few dozen educators in the room just talking about issues grew into this formalized um, uh, issue. Uh, you know, as far as what happened with me at SDMS, started out definitely on educators committee, um, I remember being approached, maybe it was even by you, Lorinda, I'm not sure when you're saying, would you be interested in, you know, running for a board position? Could I nominate you? And I think I was still chair of JRCDMS at that time. And I said, you can, but not this year, Lorinda. Uh, that sounds familiar, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, eventually, you know, I, I think this volunteerism, I think it's an addiction. It, it's like it gets the endorphins going and you just really get connected to it. And so um, when my time at JRCDMS was kind of ending in my leadership roles there, it was an opportunity to say, but I can segue. I might've crossed over a couple years on JRCDMS and SDMS board, but um, it was uh, a wonderful opportunity and um, just one I would never trade for anything. Obviously you're a notable author and uh, lecturer and board member. Is there anything that just when you think about all those years, it just really comes into focus as something was the most rewarding or satisfying out of all those different experiences. I participated in volunteerism in several different organizations. So maybe to answer your question, Lorinda, about is there anything that stood out? Um, probably in my time with the JRCDMS, it was that we went from having abdomen and OBGYN to adding educational um, concentrations in vascular and cardiac, they didn't exist. And those were big um, undertakings that we went through because we had to um, get sponsoring organizations then to participate from those communities of interest. And, you know, we didn't all think alike, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, there were differing opinions on what vascular education should look like and what cardiac education should look like and what abdomen OBGYN education should look like. So I think maybe guiding our JRCDMS through those years and getting consensus, um, not always uh, the easiest thing to do, but we did get consensus on it and the, uh, the support of those sponsoring organizations. So I think that would probably be in my years at JRCDMS what maybe was most rewarding. And we also went through a, 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 just an explosion of growth of programs, like I said, from a few dozen to up to, um, you know, a close, getting close to 300 was just um, a time that is hard to believe that growth was that explosive. In SDMS, um, 
You know, I probably, in my years on the board, um, probably the, the thing that I remember most is how hard we tried to keep moving forward in some areas. You know, one step forward, two step backwards. And I guess what comes to mind is the care bill, how hard we worked to pass it. Yes. Going up to Capitol Hill with Don Hayden and Don Kearns and some of those people that your listeners will remember as leaders in SDMS and trying to get people to understand the importance of it. You know, obviously we didn't get there, but I think I think probably what we did do was what we got the attention of employers to maybe do this from a grassroots thing to say, look, there's some risk management that we need to um, take on on ourselves. These people need minimum education. They need minimum certification. And so we may not have gotten there with legislation and licensure where we wanted to, but I think we got the attention of, of employers. And maybe that's a step. Maybe others behind me will get to more licensure. I think those are probably two of the most memorable things, I think. Those are super significant. And I can't imagine it going through the explosion and the growth in those programs. And that's something that our listeners otherwise, I I would think would take for granted going in, you know, multi-tracking into programs now and and just having the curriculum all laid out. Well, from the days where there, it didn't even exist. So you guys have laid an extremely well-built pathway for everybody and uh, hopefully they can appreciate that with with that story. During your time in the field, have you had any international experiences with sonography? I know that in our past we've interviewed a couple people, Joan Baker being one that had traveled overseas and seen a little bit of um, sonography in places like China and Russia. Um, And I know we started this podcast on the basis that sonography is growing so big that it's a worldwide thing now. It's developing in countries where um, it still has been under radiology or only controlled by physicians. So we we wanted to just hear if anybody had um, experiences with that outside of the U.S. I was kind of a homegirl because while I was doing all this, I raised five boys. What? That's even possible to live through? I didn't know that. People have told me if you're going to do five uh, of one, it was easier with boys and girls. I, I can't say because I have no girls. but um, So I was kind of a homebody, but I did have the opportunity to participate in uh, one international uh, experience with one of the physicians I worked with at Mayo. And it was um, through an organization that did mission work. And it was, um, it was called CMDA, which was Christian Medical Doctors Association. Uh, and so they would they they alternate their meeting in Africa and Asia every other year. And uh, this kind of predated um, the opportunity for media-based continuing education. But these uh, practicing physicians and um, other mid-level practitioners that were out in these remote areas, um, key, they would need to be able to know a little bit about every specialty. So they could get a patient where... Um, open heart surgery was necessary. And then the next one that could have a devastating logic in injury. Sure. Uh, so they would need eye surgery, but they also needed to be able to understand things about um, di- diagnostic um, imaging. Yeah. And if you think of these very remote areas where they were, you know, they could get a CT scanner donated to them. But as soon as the CT scanner broke down, it just became a very big doorstop or clock, as they told us. You yes. know? There yes. was no way for them to get service for it. But they could take an ultrasound machine. And if they had a scanner, they could, um, it was small enough that they could um, ship it back to the United States or ship it to, to Europe uh, for um, 
servicing and they were able to use these smaller ultrasound machines. And so our role when we were there was to teach them the very basics of being able to use it. So endoscopy and ultrasound were the number one and number two, number two diagnostic tools that they were able to use. And they used it for everything. Um, you know, eye, small parts, OB, vascular, you name it, they, they did it. But it was funny because the things we wanted to show them about things like, uh, you know, here's what a hemangioma in the liver looks like, or uh, I, I can't think of another great example right now. They wanted us to be able to tell them what does, um, what does an appendicitis look like? That's a, a, an emergency that they could make a change with. Like they said, we can't really affect change in some of these other areas that you can in a, a, a modern uh, medical practice that you're in. We're in these third world practices. And they even said appendicitis was hard because a lot of these people, they would travel three days on like a donkey to get to their clinics. Um, oh, it was a humbling experience, but it made me realize how valuable sonography was or ultrasound as a diagnostic tool because you know we kind of once ct and mri came around we lived in the shadows of those glitzy more glamorous uh, uh imaging technologies and over there uh, it wasn't ultrasound was the number one um, and only cross-sectional imaging tool that they were able to use to help these people so it was uh it was very interesting it was a uh, great opportunity. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, and I still feel like it's got to be like that still in a lot of remote areas. The acts, I mean, our ability to now put a probe to a smartphone and take it out, right. and get an image of tamponade or an image of a baby with anencephaly or something out there where they don't even have the money or the means to get to the larger cities to, to get those kind of imaging that are more glitz and glam. We're able to still take it out there. So I still feel like there's such a need um, for people to keep doing volunteer work in the future, especially on an international scope. So I think yeah. that's great. Well, not only has there been a huge amount of change in the field of sonography, but obviously the natural progression in technology, like we were just talking about, has had an impact on the methods in which sonography is utilized. So what do you predict is the looming for the future of sonography and its utilization? Well, there's probably smarter and greater minds than mine that can answer that. But uh, from my point of view, a couple of the things that I think probably we're going to see more of is the use of artificial intelligence and developing algorithms for things that we're looking at and seeing and maybe guiding sonographers and sonologists in different ways uh, than we're able to do with the limitations of our own human uh, gray matter. And so maybe seeing more of that. Um, educationally, I think if it becomes affordable, we'll see more virtual reality being used in, in the simulation world to train people in um, uh, circumstances that might be few and far between, but um, have the opportunity to see and react in a virtual reality world and maybe even see that more in some of our certification and assessment um, that goes with. Obviously the miniaturization of things and um, I'm not sure, maybe, uh, you know, maybe more automation, but I think that maybe goes with kind of hand in hand with artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even the speaking, less annotating by hand and, and speak to prompt your machine now and having scan assist and those little, you know, things, and then also the development of the 
virtual reality, it just seems like since the neurosurgeons and them are using all these virtual VR things to train, that's going to be the next thing is, is having sonographers doing VR to train and getting them even more acclimated on the real patient before they get in and get hands on. So exactly, exactly. So tied with that, if you think about where the technology is going and what do we need for the education to support that, there's also uh, that's been now uh, beyond looming on the horizon, but has actually taken place with the advanced practice sonography uh, style. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I, I have I've thought about advanced practice a lot, and I think maybe the education of advanced pre- for advanced practice through mid-level practitioners might in sonography might look a little different than the traditional models that we see. Um, and maybe that's because as a profession, we've had a hard time defining what we mean by advanced practice. Mm-hmm. Is it um, clinical experience tied in with some form of didactic learning or maybe even self-directed learning that someone participates in um, along with uh, an advanced or, or a different look at clinical practice? Or is it a whole separate profession that we're talking about? So I think it's, when I think of it as a career pathway or a ladder, I have to answer for myself first, is it a different career than um, a sonographer who's experienced? Or is it this hybridization that we think of, of somebody with years of clinical experience, or maybe not years, but um, the expertise? So maybe the competencies and proficiencies that they accomplish, um, maybe there's credit for experiential learning or, or um, uh, you know, competency-based education, which is very innovative now in um, our undergraduate type programs where people who have knowledge and skill through whatever, however they've learned it, can walk in and say, look, I already know how to do this. Give me the competency test so I can show you that I know how to do it. I don't know, I think advanced practice um, might look something more like some hybridized version of, of traditional education with maybe more self-directed learning and then an assessment that goes with it and ultimately what the capstone or terminal uh, uh, certification or certificate of completion or degree might look a little different than what we have now. Um, Advanced cardiac sonography has made some inroads into this, but I think without large, um, even traditional sonography programs typically aren't large. Uh, We need um, high quality clinical sites. And so they're traditionally smaller based programs, you know, um, uh, unlike nursing programs where you can pick up a clinical site and place, you know, a couple dozen nurses there. You can't put a couple dozen sonographers in. And I think advanced sonography will be challenged by that same sort of approach. We're probably not gonna be able to have large class sizes. Maybe we'll be looking at um, advanced programs educationally where there's a center that provides the academic and people are out at their clinical sites across the country in an environment that needs and is able to support advanced practice. Because it probably isn't gonna be able to be supported in every type of practice and environment that's out there. Sure, and then just off the top of your head, what what do you see as kind of a, um, obviously it's not an easy solution or we would have came to it already, but with the problem of not having enough 
um, internship sites for the number of people that we're graduating from programs right now. That's going to be a problem across the board, universal. Yeah, it's possible, I think, that as the interpretive practices like radiology and um, maybe obstetrics have a greater need to have people in that mid-level practitioner uh, range, that maybe it will solve itself and there will be more practices that are out there that need um, mid-level practitioners that are out there. Um, I don't know. I think that's a really hard question to answer, Jamie, because we've been struggling for clinical, you know, a, a greater need for clinical sites in, you know, traditional sonography programs or entry-level sonography programs. Um, maybe as, as we see more innovation in the accreditation world and more flexibility in it and not as much regulation on you must have so many things in each practice for it to be considered a clinical site. Maybe as we see, you know, um, some less rigidity in those areas that will open up more clinical sites in entry-level practice and similarly open up more educational or uh, practice sites for advanced practice. And maybe advanced practice isn't going to need to look like advanced in all areas of sonography. Maybe there will be some very niche areas like endocrinology advanced practice or, or um, you know, renal imaging advanced practice. And then those types of centers would be more likely to be clinical sites in those areas. I think we're a ways away from that. Yeah. Um, but we might get there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to add to the complexity of what we're discussing, both on the international as well as the uh, national challenges. If we all acknowledge that the technology is getting more and more accessible. And now we have the point of care use of ultrasound. And where does that play into both training and as a patient resource that is dependable for a good outcome? Well, yeah, point of care certainly has been uh, on the radar screen for quite a while now. Um, I have never been one to think of it as the boogeyman in the closet or to be afraid of it. I just haven't. Um, maybe it's because I lived through those years where people said, oh, CT, ultrasound is dead. We're never going to be doing ultrasound again. And MRI, oh, it's over. You know, this is the end of ultrasound. Yeah. And, you know, we've lived through both of those kinds of expansions of technology. Albeit this is different. I mean, this is taking our own technology and having others use it. But I really believe that there will always be a need for retrievable archived images um, to be available um, on a, a different scale than point of care ultrasound is. I also think that there's a, a lot of value to um, clinicians being able to use some kind of diagnostic tool to, to make the lives of patients better and the outcomes for those patients better. I think part of the education piece is, and I believe we're seeing this already, that some point of care users know the difference between this is extending the scope of my physical exam or my, my workup for this patient and when I need to request formal imaging and what that formal imaging might be. It might not be ultrasound. Maybe the CT or MR is more appropriate or a, a gateway with a formal ultrasound exam that leads to more. Um, so I think that I, I don't think point of care ultrasound is going to stop the growth of sonography or sonographers as a career. I think that it's an adjunct to what we do. I think training that goes on in, in 
at the medical school level and with some of the specialties um, is progressing. And maybe isn't maybe it's back to the future for me, because like I told you at the beginning of this interview, that's exactly what we did. We were all in the room together learning about ultrasound, uh, internal medicine, endocrinology. Everyone was there learning what it was all about. So maybe this is just, um, you know, a few decades later, the next phase in that piece that's there. But I don't I don't see it as a threat to to us as stenographers or as the career. I think we're always going to be around. Well, I think that's a great attitude to have on it because I think the more fear you show about it coming around, you know, you're kind of calling that to come in as this negative thing where if we really do embrace it and try and say, hey, we understand that this, we can't stop this technology from developing. We want to have greater access for patients to have immediate answers. And we know that ultrasound is that incredible tool that can give that to people much more safely than other modalities. But at the same time, you know, keep the standards high of, but we know that these type of exams are in these non-urgent situations. These are the people that should be doing and documenting the, these scans for, for safety and patient care. So I think yeah, it's I, an attitude to have. I think reaching out to some of the other um, medical specialties and just helping them to understand the importance of the minimum education that goes with it and uh, you know how broad or how narrow their scope can or should be just keeping those dialogue uh, uh, opportunities open and not uh, not saying it's an all or nothing uh, uh, discussion and so and and I think we're I think we are doing that as a profession and we just need to keep doing it and make sure that you know everybody um, understands it maybe even making sure our students and our graduates as they graduate don't fear point of care ultrasound. Absolutely, because in reality, if they're graduating from accredited programs or even going to get their bachelor's, they may be one day working with a point of care company, and that's their job is to go out and help train physicians in what they learned in diagnostic medical ultrasound in school. So, yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of the years ahead, because now we've been talking about this a lot, what did they look like for you, both professionally and personally? Well... I kind of feel like I'm in the twilight of my career <laughs> and, and I'm ready to uh, take advantage of the fact that I can kind of pick and choose what I want to do now and how I want to be involved. And so um, I have um, taken up a, a, a role with KHEP. I feel I have something to contribute there, but also something to learn. Um, you know, I always saw everything just through our profession, sonography, and there's 32 different professions, allied health professions out there. And it's intriguing to see the way other professions uh, deal with some of the same challenges we have, yeah. um, but also new challenges that we might face in the future as a career. So being able to share, um, share my past knowledge about allied health education um, in sonography and then take what I learned from KHEP and be able to share it uh, um, with others in our profession. So we don't make the same mistakes others do and we learn from uh, mistakes and be able to go in that direction. I don't see myself having a clinical role in the future. Um, uh, educationally, um, always happy to be able to speak if invited to and take that opportunity, but also enjoying a little um, time for me. We know that we're not just talking to a sonographer um, and somebody that's been in the field. We're talking to um, a human being that has to has learned a lot of lessons from the world that we live in and their experiences that they've had. So 
what legacy do you hope to when people, you know, listen to this podcast years down the road and, and, and maybe you're no longer have, you know, your face in the field, but what, what do you want to leave behind um, as what you con- contributed to the field? What is your legacy? Certainly, as we talked, you know, being able to take a time when, look at a time when the formalization of education in the field really didn't even exist, and to be able to make sure pretty much everybody knows what the JRC DMS is if, you, if you're in the sonography program, and I feel like I contributed to that. I think, think of that as one of my legacies. When people think about me and remember me, I hope that they think of me as a person who saw the big picture and was able to help people come to consensus on some areas that were sometimes really difficult for people. They were very passionate about it. And to be able to say, you know, we're gonna survive this as a, you know, as a profession and, and we can find some common ground here. And that I was able to, in the leadership roles that I have, had to be able to help people to understand that that was okay and it was gonna work all right. I'm obviously proud of being a wife and, you know, um, a sister and um, a parent, um, a grandparent, those kinds of things. And I hope people remember me for that. And and um, I hope all the students, I, I tried once to figure out how many students' lives I touched and I couldn't do it, couldn't do the math, but I hope that they'll remember me as somebody who inspired them to think that they were going into a career and not a job. I, I have no doubt that they, you probably left that with them. And Absolutely. I think the peacemaker that you have been able to be in the midst of a very polarized situation is everything the world needs today. It's those people to say, let's look at the bigger <laughs> picture. Let's do it for the greater good and put aside our, our, our wants and needs above everybody else's. So I really, really just think that is so honorable of you to, to um, be proud of that. So. Well, thank, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Katie, thanks so much for joining us on this episode. It has been a pleasure to sit down with you, and we just thank you so much for your service to the occupation of sonography, everything you've given, all the time that you've volunteered. You are truly an example of what it means to give back. Thank you, everybody out there, for joining us for episode number 13. Join us for our next episode, number 14, when we sit down with author and luminary in the field, Ms. Marvine Craig. There was a book that I picked up as a student when I was uh, going to school to be a sonographer, and it was written by Marvin Craig. Years later, I come to find out um, how amazing this woman is. So don't miss our next interview, and until then, take care.